Pray together with me, please. Precious living God, to open your word is such a privilege. It is such a privilege, my Father, that you would have spoken to us, that you would have your word been revealed, that you would have the mysteries of the universe and the mysteries of who you are and who Jesus is revealed to us through your holy word. My Father in heaven, I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we be enlightened to receive your word as more than knowledge, but a living word that leads us to you. Show us who you are, and I pray you would use me and my lips and my mind and my heart and my spirit to be in tune with you. And I pray that we all would receive from you the grace that you have for us this day. Be exalted, precious God, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year uh, to all of you. First of all, thank you to Father Steve for taking the service for me last week so that I can have some time off. I really appreciate his ministry here at St. David's. Uh, the other thing that I want to say before we actually begin is that uh, I want you to open your Bibles, please. I would like you to open your Bibles, not to Mark, as is in the, uh, as was read this morning. I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction. I want you to open your Bibles to the second chapter of Matthew. Second chapter of Matthew. And um, the reason that I'm asking you to do that, and also in your, in your bulletins, you have a paper to write, any notes, anything I may say that may bless you or touch you. But also I want your ears and your hearts to be attentive to what the Lord may be saying to you beyond my words. Because sometimes I sit in the pews to listen to other preachers, and as they're preaching, my mind is also working. My mind is working, bringing to memory other scriptures, even if the, the preacher is not using them. And just reminded me of things either in my personal life or in the Word. And so I'm being enriched beyond what the preacher may be talking about. So I want you to have uh, the ability to take notes, and whatever it is the Lord says to you, uh, be blessed by it. And the reason that I'm moving uh, my preaching to, to Matthew 2, verses uh, the first chapter of Mark, as was read in the gospel, is that yesterday actually was the celebration of Epiphany, of Epiphany Day, January 6th. And all through Advent and Christmas, we have been following the star, correct? We have been following the star, and we have been focusing on the movement of this star that leads the wise men uh, to Bethlehem. And we have looked at each of the themes of the day. We looked at, uh, at uh, joy, and we looked at love, 
and we looked at hope, and, and eventually on Christmas Day, we looked at peace, and we looked at Jesus being the Prince of Peace, and, uh, and we focused on the Isaiah 9 chapter uh, that is just such a beautiful message. But I, I didn't want just to jump into the baptism. I want to actually conclude the journey of the star. I actually wanted to do that, and since yesterday was Epiphany, um, I, I wanted today to focus on, on that day, on Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany, if you, um, if you remember, is what we celebrate when the wise men finally come to the end of their journey and actually find the baby. Actually get to look into the manger, actually get to look into the eyes of this baby and probably the flopping hands and flopping uh, feet of Jesus, uh, the baby, and bow down and worship him. And kings come to worship the king of kings. And so I want to kind of close that journey by uh, sharing with you some more things about this day uh, of Epiphany. And um, let's first of all look at the geographical setting which is the background of this story in the life of Jesus. Uh, we are told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem of Judea. And Bethlehem is about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. And you can see in the map, in the small circle is, is Jerusalem. Uh, Nazareth, of course, is way up there in, in Galilee. But you can see where Bethlehem is. And that's where Mary and Joseph end their journey, and that's where the wise men find the baby, or the child, as I'll share with you in a moment. But the whole chapter, the whole of chapter 2 of Matthew begin with these words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's how the story begins. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. I want you to know that the Old Testament prophets had clearly announced the birth of the baby, but also the place of the baby. And in a way, Jesus is the only child that is ever born that chooses his own mother and father, and he's the only baby that's ever been born that actually chooses where he wants to be born. It's the only baby in all of history that has that ability because he is the Son of God and he is the Lord and nothing's been created that wasn't created by him and nothing happens that Jesus was not part of it. And so it begins by telling us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. The Old Testament, like I said, have predicted this. Uh, both Matthew and Luke quote some of the prophets as to uh, where the baby was going to be born. And we are told that it is in the time of Herod the Great, and when Herod the Great governed in Judea as king. Uh, we know historically by some of the writings that have been done that Herod was king in Judea or in, yeah, basically Judea, uh, in Israel, uh, he was king from about 73 or 74 B.C. to about 4 B.C. 
So we know that Jesus had to be born within that period of time, and most likely from everything that we know toward the very latter part, possibly around 4 BC. I want you to know that Herod the Great was not Jewish, which a lot of people may have thought that, Jesus, that, that Herod was Jewish. Uh, Herod actually was an Edomite. He was born way south on the other side of the Dead Sea, where Edom was. And we know historically by reading Scripture that Israelites and Edomites were not friendly toward each other. They were enemies of each other and, and fought continuously. And when Israel was down, the Edomites would capture Israelites and they would sell them into slavery. And so Edomites and Israelites were not friendly. So how does an Edomite become the king of Judea, the king over all the Israelites? And if you remember some history of the great battle between Augustus Caesar, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and his battle with Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, you can go back to the movies and remember uh, the movies about Antony and Cleopatra. But Caesar Augustus fought a great battle against Antony and defeated him. And Herod the Great was a great help to Caesar Augustus in that battle against Antony and Cleopatra. And for that reason, the emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus, made him the king of the Jews. He's not an elected king. The Israelites were very unhappy with being ruled by somebody who is an Edomite. And for what we know about Herod, Herod was not a very nice man either. He was rather very ruthless, very zealous for the kingdom. And any idea that even his children, if he thought his children were going to attempt a coup on his kingdom, he had them killed. He had some of his own children killed. He was extremely paranoid about anyone coming up to take over his kingdom. However, on the other side, he was a tremendously wonderful builder. He's the one responsible for building the, and, and actually beautifying the second temple, the temple that the Jews were so proud of. He was the one that rebuilt, and in, in a way he wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jews by working so hard and, and making the temple look really, really beautiful. He also built uh, Caesarea Maritima, which, which is an amazing building uh, on the coast, uh, a little up north. He was responsible for building a beautiful palace in Jericho. In fact, I believe that's where he died in Jericho, and he built Masada. He built the great fortress of Masada. Herod was known as a tremendously amazing builder, but he's also known as a tremendously ruthless individual when it comes to ruling. On the east side, it's the territory of the old empire. That's the territory of the Assyrians, and it's also the territory of the Babylonians, 
and then eventually the Medo-Persians. That's the territory from where, well, eventually Alexander the Great conquered all of this land, and eventually the Romans conquered all of these lands. This is the region from where the Magi came from, or the wise men, or the kings, or whatever terms we want to, to give them. Okay? And they probably came from that area, probably from around 6 BC to 4 BC, following a star. The region is famous since the Babylonian or Assyrian times for people who studied astronomy. If you've ever heard the word Zoroastrianism, that's the area from where this study came from. The idea of studying the stars. It was even involved with issues of magic. This is the place where these people keep looking to the heavens because they know by many things they have heard, and I'll mention a few things to you, they know that God was going to announce the birth of a king over all kings, the greatest king that would ever have existed. And as they're looking to the stars for a message, looking to the stars for, for guidance, in that area there appears a star like no other star. And one of the things that make this star like no other star is that this is a moving star. This is not a star that is fixed in the heavens. This star seems to be inviting, come and follow me. And I've shared some of this with you as I preach through Advent and, and Christmas. This star was different. Probably different in shining, but different in the way that it moved. Different. And they felt that indeed this was God announcing the birth of the king that was to be born, and they wanted to go and, and follow. Now, let's correct a couple of traditions that we hold. One of the traditions that we tend to hold about these wise men, it's not confirmed by Scripture at all, but we love sometimes creating traditions. One of them is that there were three wise men. In fact, we just sang a song, you know, three wise men. The reality is that the Bible doesn't say how many they are at all. It may have been a whole caravan. But the reason we say that it is three kings is because of the three presents that are brought. Because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, we have come up with the idea and has been taught to us by song or poetry or, or, or just tradition that the three kings came from the East. The reality scripture doesn't say that at all. Tradition has gone so far as to give the three kings names. You remember the names of the three kings? Melchior, Gaspar, Balthazar. That's not biblical at all. <laughs> that is not in Scripture whatsoever. That's one of those traditions that we kind of need to understand. They may be nice, and they may be nice for children. And, and let me just throw in there for fun. 
that in Cuba, we don't really have Santa Claus. And we don't have Santa Claus because we don't have chimneys. So, so Santa Claus doesn't come down the chimney, though we celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus on the 25th. You know, it's, it's, um, it's mostly an adult uh, celebration. What we celebrate in most of the Hispanic countries and, and, and also in, in other places like Armenia, what we celebrate is the three wise king coming loaded with presents for the children. And because we don't have chimneys, these wise king with their camels become really miniature and they go through the keyholes. <laughs> and then they get big again after and they, they eat some of the grass that we left the night before and, and they eat some of the fruit and stuff like that. They leave the presents and then they go out the same way they came in. So for children, present bringing and present giving is actually Epiphany Day, not Christmas Day. It's Epiphany Day. So we always looked to Epiphany. The other thing that I, I think it's kind of part of the tradition, though we don't know for sure, is that they were kings. Uh, the, the re really, we don't know that they were kings. However, uh, I want to just show you in Isaiah chapter 60 what it says. It says, the Gentiles, this is Isaiah 500 years before Jesus and 500 years before Epiphany, at least 500. It says, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Gentiles will come like they were Gentiles, pagans. They were not Jewish either. And kings would come to the brightness of your rising. And then following just a couple more verses, it says, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. So we, we find in Isaiah prophecies that kind of help give us this idea of these people being kings. The reality is we have no idea whether they were kings or not. However, we could say that the reason they actually had an audience with Herod the Great was that perhaps they were kings, or perhaps they were king emissaries. They did have an audience with Herod the Great, and so that's a possibility. Also, the gifts may tell us that these were possibly ambassadors of the kings of the East. I mean, some of the indications in Scripture is that these were somehow royal emissaries, if not themselves or one of them or more of them actually involved in the kingdom or one of the kingdoms in, in the East. But these are some of the things that have been traditions that we kind of need to keep in balance and, uh, and debunk some of them, perhaps. There are certain things we do know for certain, and the Bible teaches us. Uh, one of them is that they came from the East. That's very, very clear. 
that they came from the east. So we know more or less the area from where they came, and we also know that, uh, that they come following a star. They come following a, a moving star. All of creation is announcing the birth of Jesus. All of creation is moving toward the fulfillment of showing the birth of Jesus to the world. Now, let's talk a tiny little bit, because I'm not going to go too far about this star. And some of the things I have found about the star. You see, a lot has been written about this, this amazing star, this special sign in heaven that led these wise men all the way from the east to the manger in Bethlehem. Some have considered it a pure myth. Just a, a pure myth, a pure story. Others have indicated that it, it may have been a what's called a nova or a supernova. Kind of a dying star or exploding star. And because it explodes, it just moves all over the place. All kinds of ideas have been, have been offered. Others have said that this star may have been a comet. And in fact... There are comets that appear and have appeared throughout the centuries uh, many times in the sky. And one of those comets primarily that we know about, and I remember reading a little bit about it a few years back, is Halley's Comet. And it appears that it appears in the heavens about every 77 years or so. And it may have appeared around 12 or 11 BC. Others have thought and looked into it being the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and Mars. And actually, there's a lot of evidence astrologically in Chinese and Korean sources and other sources, as well as modern astrology, of events occurring in the sky during the period of 7 or 5 or even 4 BC to about 12 BC. There is clear evidence that there was something in the skies in this period of time. Exactly what it was, I will not tell you what it was other than that it is the star of Bethlehem that Matthew tells us about. But exactly how God did it, that's what the mysteries of God are all about. Any speculation can lead us into heresy really quick. And so I'd rather not speculate, just tell you what the Word says. It's worth mentioning that the wise men from the East would have had some knowledge of Jewish prophecy, right? It's not unimaginable. After all, the Jews lived among them for a long period of time, at least 70 years. That's where Daniel comes from. That's where Esther was queen. That's where Ezekiel did most of his prophetic ministry. So the fact that Jewish prophecy would have been known in the East, it's not unusual or strange. They may have been very aware and it may even have informed what they were looking for. But there was more than just Jewish prophecy. Some of these things I found in the internet. And I found that Cicero and Virgil the Roman uh, writers 
indicate, they, they say that a chaste woman smiling on her infant boy with whom the Iron Age would pass away. That's an amazing prophecy, not from godly sources, but from pagan sources. Another one that I found was another Roman writer, Suetonius. He writes, Roman fearful about a king who would rule the world. The Romans were fearful about a king that would rule the world. Confucius, the Chinese, spoke of this baby to be born as the saint and pointed to one that would be born called the saint. And the Sibyls, uh, prophecies, spoke of a universal king. Now, these people in the East may have been very aware of all sorts of prophecies about the king of all kings that was to be born. No wonder when the star appears, they just say, this is it. Let's follow. They come looking for a very special king that was to be born and had been announced by this very special star. And their journey takes them all the way to Bethlehem. One of the things I want you to notice when you read Matthew and the story of the wise men, which I think it's important. Remember I told you that Matthew begins by saying, after the birth of Jesus Christ. And when you read the story about the Magi actually coming, Matthew no longer uses the word, they found the baby. He uses, they found the child. It also says that they didn't come to the manger. It says that they came to the house. Which tells us that a period had elapsed from the actual birth of Jesus to the actual finding of the wise men of this child that would be the king of all kings. That is biblical. And we shouldn't pass it over. We should pay attention that Jesus may have been a little older than just a baby. And he no longer was in a cave with animal or laying on a manger, but he may have been a little bit of a toddler or a little bit older in a house. And that's where they find this baby or this child, but they immediately recognize him because the star stops and no longer moves the moment that it comes to the spot. And they find this child and marry his mother. And they bow down and worship him, offering to him the gifts that they had brought. Actually, it, it reads like this in Matthew 2, verse 11. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I mentioned this on Christmas Eve when I preached, but it's worth mentioning again because I think it's important. The name of the season where we celebrate the, the Magi finding the child is called Epiphany. Epiphany is a Greek word. Epi means 
uh, in Greek, upon, upon, to be upon. And phaneo actually means to look, to look or to see. I see, I look. So epiphany actually means to look upon the child. And so what we celebrate is God manifesting his son and his son's birth and who was born and kind of showing him up and saying to these Gentiles, the first Gentiles to come and worship the king of kings. And he kind of lifts him up and we call it epiphany, to look upon the child and recognize him as the son of God. And so when we celebrate Epiphany, what we're celebrating is the revelation of God, of His Son, to the world. You understand? Are you with me? God is manifesting His Son to the world and showing Him up. Kind of the picture in my head a little bit. It's the Lion King where, you know, the babies is lifted up. And I see Jesus lifting Him up. For the entire universe, angels and archangels and all the hosts of heaven and beyond and every earthly being, even to today, saying, look upon what I've done. Look upon my son. Look and rejoice because a great light has shone and the king of kings has been born. And that's what Epiphany is. And so when we celebrate Epiphany, we celebrate the fact that God gave his son and showed him to the world and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. Jesus becomes visible to the world and for all people to see. And, and, and in a way... Jesus was mean, being not just manifested. I want you to get this. Jesus was being made available to you and to me. Jesus was being made available to the world, to humankind. Not just showing him as a great thing, but saying he's here for you. He is being made available to you. Because its salvation is in no other than in Jesus Christ. Hope and peace and joy and eternity is available only in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is not just being showed off. He is being made available that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. That's what Epiphany is about. And so they bring gold Gold is a sign of the kingship of Jesus. Gold is kings bringing a gift to the king of kings. And they bring something called frankincense. And frankincense is kind of a perfume, an expensive perfume, uh, which in a way was to honor his divinity. It's frankincense, and they bring some costly perfume, and they lay it at the feet of the baby, gold and frankincense. And then they bring something called myrrh. And myrrh is, uh, is, is also a fragrance, a very expensive fragrance, uh, which was used primarily for anointing the dead. 
It's kind of the last thing you would do for someone you love a lot. And in a way, it speaks about the humanity of Jesus. And it pointed beyond the manger or beyond the house, it pointed to the cross. So he is being considered the king. He's being anointed as the king, but he's also being anointed to be the king that dies for all people. Now, the thing that blesses me, and I hope uh, blesses you, because this is possibly the most important thing, is that for these wise men to find the king of all kings, for these wise men to to actually find the divine Son of God, three things had to happen. One, they had to forsake the comforts of their own home. They had to leave everything. I mean, they, they had to go and, and leave home, leave family, leave jobs, leave whatever it is, and venture into an unknown journey through difficult territories and sometimes dangerous territories, they had to forsake in order to find. The second thing that these wise men had to do is they had to follow the star. They couldn't just find the, the child or the baby just on their own journey, their own map, their own GPS. They had to follow it according to God's GPS. Okay? You don't find peace. You don't find any of these things according to your own plans for your own life. So they had to forsake. They had to follow the directions of God and the star. And once they found, they worshipped. And they fell at the feet of this child and the family, and they bowed down. I mean, can you imagine these grown men with camels or animals and maybe an entourage and maybe dressed completely non-Jewish, right? Completely non-Jewish. Just imagine in your mind the turban or whatever way you want to picture. Clearly their clothing was non-Jewish. And just bowing down and worshiping this little child. Imagine Mary looking at this and saying, whoa. <laughs> just, just imagine what it might have been like. And then they give these enormous, costly, meaningful gifts. And they tell the story of how the star appeared and what they were looking for and what happened when they got to Jerusalem and what the prophecy said. And, and eventually they receive a message from the Lord that they were not to return to Herod, that they were to go back home in a different direction because they knew what Herod wanted to do with the baby. If he had called, killed his own sons, imagine killing this child. And in fact, he kills every child in Bethlehem under the age of two, just hoping that Jesus falls within that group. But what I want to say to you is that Jesus is as available to you today as he's been available to everyone for years and years and years. Jesus is available to you and all that it takes 
in a way you also and I have to forsake. We have to leave things that are comfortable. We need to, to leave our own ideas, our own ways, our own self-centeredness. We have to be willing to abandon our own ways to seek the ways of God. To look at the revelation of God and say, I may not understand all of the mysteries of God, but I am willing to trust that God has wanted to give his son and that in giving his son, he's made him available for my salvation. And I need to embrace that. We have to be willing to forsake a great deal and comforts and dreams, and monies, and all of that, so that we can have the greater treasure, which is the Son of the living God. We have to, to forsake. You know, some people will not come to Jesus because they are entrenched in their own selfishness or their own self-centeredness, and it has to be their way. God has to reveal His way. God has to do it their way, and there are people that will not come to Jesus mostly out of willfulness than out of anything else. And so we fight the revelation of God. We fight the love of God. We fight either because we don't feel that we're worthy or because we need to understand first before we leap. And sometimes we need to leap first and just trust that God is God, and there's no other like Him. And if you trust God, He will show you things that you cannot see in any other way. You will experience things in your life that you will not experience in your own way. So sometimes we have to forsake our ways that we may find God's way. And the second thing, like the Magi, we need to follow. We need to follow not according to our own GPSs or our own plans or how things should, how God should have done it. I think we need to follow and we need to follow by the revelation of God in Scripture. God has written the Scriptures for us to have a plan, for us to have a journey map, for us to have a way from our own world into God's world. And we need to follow, following the star, following the scriptures. And the last thing we need to do is when we come to that child, to that Jesus, however you picture him, as a baby or a child or a grown man on the cross, the ultimate thing you and I need to do is bow down and worship. And worship. I wouldn't ask him any questions. I wouldn't ask him why the Bible says this or why should that have been that way. Or be All we have to do is just worship him and submit and bow down and open our gifts to him, the gift of our hearts, the gift of our lives, the gift of our praise. Ourselves are a gift to God. Say, Lord, I give myself to you. I may not understand everything. I may not know everything. But I trust you with my life, with my family, with my marriage, 
with my children, with my grandchildren. I trust you with my job. And I submit it all to you. For you alone are God, and there is no other. And you have to do that. There's no other way. There's no other way. Once you find the baby, once you find the Lord, once you find the one that God has sent for you, all you have to do, all that is left to do, is worship. Just bow down and worship. So my invitation to you today, wherever you're from, wherever you are in your life, give God a chance in your life. Trust Him. Trust Him because I can tell you from my own life, He'll never let you down. He'll give you more than you can ever have on your own. He'll give you things you can't buy. He'll give you things you can't earn. And He'll give you primarily His love and eternal life eternal life. So I want to ask you to consider as we celebrate Epiphany, the child that was given to you and for you. Amen.